Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Week. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents this Saturday the 9th of April. I'm Giselle Hanna and I'm taking you through to 9.30 this morning. Of course, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. You can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so also check us out on those two social media platforms. We publish lots of news um, and information about grassroots campaigns um, and issues from the Asia Pacific region um, for those of us that are actively involved in that part of the world. Coming up in the second part of the program, I'm going to play an extended excerpt of a um, speech that was delivered at the Marxism 2016 uh, conference. Of course, a big thank you to um, Annie who just uh, rounded up Solidarity Breakfast this morning and I was listening to her show and I know that she brought you a number of those conversations that were had over Marxism 2016 as well. This morning, though, I'm going to play you um, part of the talk that was delivered by Ali Abu Nama, who is a Palestinian-American journalist and activist, and um, he provided a very, very insightful um, talk about the struggle in Palestine. So that is what is coming up in the second part of the program. But of course, first up, news from around the region, and we're going to start in Bangladesh uh, in the shipyard industry where there's been yet another killing but also some pretty severe repression as well. There are more fatalities and repression in the notoriously dangerous shipbreaking industry in Bangladesh. Private security at the Kabir Steel Yard in Chittagong, one of Bangladesh's major port cities, started shooting at a crowd of protesting workers. They injured seven of them. What were the workers protesting about? Well, on the 28th of March, a worker, Sumon, was killed when he was run over by a truck that was transporting steel plates. When one of the government representatives actually um, came into the steel yard and sought to get the compensation his family is supposedly entitled to, Kabir Steel said that the truck that killed the worker wasn't owned by them, it was owned by another company. And so Kabir Steel didn't have to pay any compensation to this uh, to the worker's family. That's what caused the protest. The workers and Sumon's family also believe that the company is withholding Sumon's body inside the yard. The campaign to ensure that Sumon's family is compensated has been taken up by local groups in Bangladesh and the seven injured workers have been hospitalised. Moving now to Cambodia. Cambodia's parliament approved the... So uh, last week I um, mentioned a new law that was coming into effect in Cambodia that um, labour groups were vehemently opposing because it is quite draconian. So on Monday, uh, that law actually did come into effect. Cambodia's parliament approved the oppressive and anti-union trade union law without making any changes demanded by labour groups and the opposition who decried it as too strict and designed to limit workers' rights. 
The law is a hotly contested issue in Cambodia, um, which has a $5 billion textiles and footwear sector. It's the biggest employer, that sector, and economic driver. It produces um, uh, products for groups like Nike, H&M, Puma, Marks, and Spencer and Inditex, among uh, among more than a dozen global um, clothing brands. Some of about a hundred protesters clashed with security guards outside the National Assembly before the bill was passed and at least two union activists suffered bloody head injuries. Some of the aspects of the law include being able to limit strikes, government interference in trade union work, as well as their ability, the government's ability, to suspend or dissolve trade unions. So where did this law come from? Business owners requested the rules in 2007 to prevent strikes by unions representing some 700,000 workers in the industry and that industry is of course growing rapidly and and part of the motivation is to ensure that the Bangladeshi garment industry can undercut China's factories. More fatalities, unfortunately, comrades. So we go now to Pakistan where there were um, more more fatalities in an exploding coal mine. Five miners were killed and eight were injured in an explosion at a coal mine in Pakistan on the 2nd of April. The mine is owned by Shiraz Coal Company. Thirteen workers were inside the coal mine when a methane gas explosion occurred, trapping them all. A rescue operation carried out by the political administration and Frontier Corps personnel rescued eight of the injured miners who were rushed to a nearby hospital and they retrieved the bodies of five that had been killed. According to reports, the owner, contractor and mine manager have been arrested and the company's mining licence will be annulled. Another six mine owners who are operating mines without permission were also arrested, a very rare outcome of uh, explosions such as these. A survey of reported accidents since 2010 shows that at least 240 workers have died in 40 accidents in less than four, uh, in Pakistan. In less than four months of 2016, Pakistani mines claimed the lives of 30 mine workers, a very dangerous industry. And our final story today comes from Turkey. In March, Hugo Boss which is the company Hugo Boss, fired Mariam Bikaki because she supports the Texef trade union, which is organising at her factory. It's another sacking in a long-running union-busting campaign by the luxury fashion label and its largest production facility in Izmir in Turkey. The German-based brand has also increased pressure on two other leading union members, Fikri Mutlu and Murad Aigun. The objective is clear, frightened workers away from joining a union. But what's more interesting is their tactic. Listen to this. The dismissals were made by Izmir management in the knowledge that Abdullah, Suleiman and Mariam, so these are the three workers that were targeted, would take their case of unfair dismissal um, due to their union activities to court and ultimately win. So the company knew that they were going to win, but this is how they pressure people. So you actually have to go through an entire court process. Management prefers to be found guilty in a Turkish court than to allow its workers to freely support a union of their choosing. That is the news from around the region. I'm going to go to some community announcements and then that extended um, excerpt from Ali Abu Nama's speech at the Marxism conference.
The new International Bookshop, Melbourne's famous left-wing bookshop. We stock the widest range of left-wing literature and merchandise, as well as heaps of cheap quality, second-hand books. Visit Nibs at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, or online at www.newinternationalbookshop.org.au. The New International Bookshop is a 3CR supporter. Hello, this is Archie Roach and you're listening to Good Music on 855 AM on 3CR. You are listening to 3CR. It is eight minutes past nine o'clock. Ali Abunama is a Palestinian-American journalist. He is the co-founder of the Electronic Intifada, a wonderful website. You should go to it and check it out. Here is Ali Abunama. So I want to just really give sort of a, a, a fairly broad overview of the struggle for justice in Palestine uh, in order to set up our discussion. And really, as a starting point, um, mention that the first sentence of my book, The Battle for Justice in Palestine, is the Palestinians are winning. And uh, that might sound like really kind of a, uh, a crazy statement uh, when you look at the situation in Palestine and around Palestine in so many ways. Um, but really, I, I want to use that idea to frame this overview I'm giving, and really to, to, to think in terms of the, in, in essence, the, the balance sheet of where we are in the struggle. And um, the reason I say that it might be sort of crazy to say the Palestinians are winning is because by so many clear objective measures, Palestinians have really never been in a more disastrous situation. Uh, within historic Palestine and in the region around it. Uh, within Palestine, uh, for those who, uh, you know, just to make it very simple, when I say historic Palestine, I mean what is now Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip. Prior to the creation of Israel in 1948, ne there was never a state called Israel until 1948, Everyone called it Palestine before that, including the Zionists. The Zionists used to refer to themselves as Palestinians. So um, when I say historic Palestine, uh, Palestine I'm referring to uh, the, what is now Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip. So you have within this territory today uh, a situation where you have about 12 million people uh, just about half of them are Palestinians, uh, and about, well, you know, th there's about almost six million Palestinians, almost six million Israeli Jews, and about a million people who would not fit neatly in, into those categories. And those categories are themselves, uh, you know, subject to uh, further analysis because there's a lot of diversity among uh, Palestinians and indeed among Israeli Jews. But for shorthand, uh, it's about 50-50. And the trends are clear that Palestinians are becoming the majority population once again, as they were prior to the ethnic cleansing that began in 1947 and continued into the early 1950s in its most intense form 
resumed again in its most intense form in 1967, but has really continued uh, in various ways uh, ever since. But, the, you know, so you have a country where roughly half the population of Palestinians, roughly half are Israeli Jews, but they live in conditions of radical inequality. Uh, and every aspect of life is determined by whether you're an Israeli Jew or you're a Palestinian or something else. And that, you know, we can come back to this, but that's really why uh, people apply the uh, analogy of apartheid, because your faith, how long you live, whether you're allowed to build a house or not, whether you can get a job, whether you can travel freely around the country, uh, etc., is really determined by uh, the ethnic categorization the uh, Israeli state uh, applies to you. So this is why apartheid is considered uh, a very appropriate uh, framework. But it's also, and again, this is similar, this, this links Palestine to South Africa, to Australia, to New Zealand, to the United States and Canada, which is the context of settler colonialism. Uh, 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 the Zionist narrative is a narrative of indigeneity and authenticity, that Jews are returning to an ancient homeland. Uh, and that uh, myth of indigeneity is one that we often see in settler colonial narratives. Uh, the use of the idea of a biblical covenant people returning to uh, or, or going to a land with some kind of uh, blessing from the deity. This was true in the United States where the early European settlers spoke about building a shining city on a hill and later adopted the term manifest destiny, that there was a sort of a divine right to uh, destroy the indigenous peoples of the Americas and take their land. And we saw it, of course, in South Africa, where the, uh, the uh, Afrikaners uh, saw themselves as a new Israel, a covenant people sent to, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, conquer uh, this land. And of course it's ironic because the, uh, the, Zion, the early Zionists and the bulk of the Zionist movement was um, anti-religious and secular and, and fashioned itself as socialist, I, you know, socialist settler colonialism is not a concept I can wrap my head around. <laughs> but it's important uh, to understand that history, that, that um, really the, the myth of return, of, of, of Jews returning for some kind of religious reason, really only came into the mainstream later. It was there from the beginning, but it came later, particularly after the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza in 1967. And the reason for that is now Israel had conquered uh, what they call Judea and Samaria uh, and uh, the rest of Jerusalem that they hadn't conquered in 1948 and needed an excuse to start to uh, needed an excuse to justify settler colonization and permanent occupation. And so there you see the rise of the religious nationalist Zionist movement and groups like Bush Emunim, who, of course, are not going to say, we just want the land, but, but you know, start to push these religious myths of return and of fulfilling uh, God's promise in some way. Bearing in mind 
that, uh, that uh, large segments of uh, Orthodox Judaism totally reject this and view Zionism as a heresy that, uh, you know, that the, the, the Jews should not return to the land of Israel uh, until uh, God says so and until the Messiah comes. And uh, according to latest reports, that has not happened yet. <laughs> so the, the creation of Israel was, uh, was through an act of uh, mass violence and ethnic cleansing that lasted, that in its most intense phase, in 1948 lasted the better part of a year, but has continued. And the, the result was to expel 90% of the Palestinian population from what became Israel in 1948, and to expel several hundred thousand more Palestinians in 1967, and just as importantly, not to allow them to come back. And the reason for not letting them come back is very clear. Israel markets itself as a Jewish state. What it means is a Jewish majority state. Uh, and the term they use is a Jewish and democratic state. And what that means is too many Arabs means Jews lose power in elections. And so the way to maintain the fiction of a Jewish and democratic state has been the uh, violent control of Palestinians in every part of historic Palestine. The most brutal uh, end of that is what's happening in Gaza. 1.8 million Palestinians caged into a very small territory, fenced in, held prisoner. I was able to visit Gaza in 2013 uh, through Egypt that was before the military coup in Egypt now it's totally closed I think the, the border with Egypt was open for a total of 20 days in the last year and the border with Israel is permanently closed except for uh, a very few special cases uh, and this means that if you live in Gaza um, you cannot you know and, and the Gaza just to take the most basic elements of human existence. Uh, healthcare. The healthcare system is in collapse in Gaza because Gaza has been under a very tight Israeli blockade for so many years. So many Palestinians, if you get cancer, for example, you may have to go to a hospital in Cairo or in Israel or in Jerusalem or even in Jordan. Well, your ability to go and get life-saving treatment depends on an Israeli military commander deciding whether you should live or die. And the number of Palestinians who can get permits in a timely way for life-saving treatment is very small compared with the need. And Israel uses this system as a form of blackmail. There are uh, many well-documented reports of Israel telling people, well, we'll give you a permit, but you have to give us information. So blackmailing people to become informants for the occupier is one of the methods of, of control. And Gaza is subjected to regular bombardments, uh, massacres, most recently on a large scale in the summer of 2014 when Israel killed uh, more than 2,000. Palestinians uh, 
including 551 children, 11 children a day during the summer massacre in Gaza. And Israel refers to this process as mowing the lawn. In other words, if the natives who you have in this uh, cage uh, get too uppity or, or, get, uh, or, or start to uh, get ideas that they can resist you, you massacre enough of them that they get the message. This is what Israeli commanders call mowing the law. But the, the basic reason for um, the, the, the siege and closure of Gaza goes back to this fear of the Israeli settler state of too many Palestinians diluting or polluting this so-called Jewish and democratic state. And that was expressed in the starkest terms by uh, a senior advisor to the Israeli government in 2005. This was around the time, or 2004, just before Israel decided to pull its settlers out of Gaza and basically turn Gaza into this giant prison. And this advisor was called um, Arnon Sofer. He's actually a professor also at the University of Haifa. Uh, his name uh, uh, is, uh, he's, he's a demographer apparently. And in Hebrew, the word sofer means someone who counts. And so he's, his nickname in Israel is Arnon the Arab counter because he's so obsessed with this uh, problem of too many Palestinian babies being born and, and uh, potentially polluting or diluting the uh, so-called Jewish and democratic state. So in 2004, he gave an interview to the Jerusalem Post where he explained what the nightmarish future of Gaza would be. Uh, and he said, and explaining what Israel called unilateral separation, which meant pulling the settlers out and basically hermetically sealing Gaza from the outside world. And he said, unilateral separation doesn't guarantee peace. It guarantees a Jewish Zionist state with an overwhelming majority of Jews. The day after unilateral separation, the Palestinians will bombard us with artillery fire and we will have to retaliate. But at least the war will be at the fence not in the kindergartens of Tel Aviv and Haifa. Uh, we will tell the Palestinians that if a single missile is fired over the fence, we will fire 10 in response, and women and children will be killed, and houses will be destroyed. And a few years later, when 2.5 million people live in a closed-off Gaza, it's going to be a human catastrophe those people will be even bigger animals than they are today. With the aid of an insane fundamentalist Islam, the pressure at the border will be awful. It's going to be a terrible war. So if we want to remain alive, we will have to kill and kill and kill all day, every day. Um, and there was something else he said. He said, if we don't kill, we will cease to exist. The only thing that concerns me is how to ensure that the boys and men who are going to have to do the killing will be able to return home to their families and be normal human beings. Now, this kind of uh, literally genocidal language is not rare. Arnon Sofer was a senior advisor 
to Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, but you can find it in the Israeli cabinet today. I'm very proud that one of the things the Electronic Intifada did was expose to the world the genocidal, uh, uh, true genocidal face of Israel's justice minister, Ayelet Shaked, uh, when just before the last attack on Gaza, she posted an article on Facebook in which she called uh, really for genocide of the Palestinian people, and she said, uh, she declared that the entire Palestinian people is the enemy and justified its destruction, quote, including its elderly, elderly and its women, its cities and its villages, its property, its infrastructure. And she even calls for the slaughter of Palestinian mothers who give birth to what she calls little snakes. This is the language of genocide. Now, at that point, she was just an MP in the Israeli parliament. It was after this that she was made justice minister. So what kind of a democracy, what kind of a democracy do you get promoted for calling for the genocide of a people who live under your military rule. So Gaza, I could say a lot more about Gaza, but the thing I want you to understand here is Gaza is the most brutal end of Israel's policy of demographic control, of keeping the numbers of the natives down by killing, by expelling, or by caging them into very small areas. But this is a policy that extends throughout historic Palestine. In the West Bank, uh, of course, where Israeli settler colonialism is alive and well. I mentioned Israel pulled its settlers out of Gaza, but that was basically a cost-benefit analysis. They said, we have 8,000 settlers in Gaza, but you know, at that point, a million and a half Palestinians. If we take out the 8,000 settlers, we can seal off these 1.5 million Palestinians and subtract them, uh, in essence, from the population. But Israel has intensified its settler colonization in the West Bank with, uh, you know, with, with abandon. Land is being confiscated left, right, and center from Palestinians. And this brutal, violent colonization requires a system of really totalitarian control of the Palestinian population who lives there. So Ali Abunama then goes to play a video of some of the night raids, which is indicative of um, this totalitarian um, control and terrorism applied against the Palestinian people. He picks up here following playing that particular video. A couple of things to note about this video. Did you know, notice how the officer was speaking to the other soldiers? He was saying, do it right, go check those rooms hold the gun with both hands. Uh, this was a training exercise. wasn't a training exercise for the Palestinians. In other words, these night raids, and then if you watch the rest of the video, they pull all the children out of bed and they photograph them. But these night raids happen sometimes dozens of times a night all across the West Bank, and Israel is building a total database of every Palestinian child. So if a Palestinian child is accused of throwing a stone, they already have all their information. It's also a form of intimidation, obviously. But really what I want you to get from this is this is military occupation. 
if you if you uh, you know you can use the term military occupation and it sounds like a very big thing and it's sort of tanks and soldiers and whatever it's, it can be abstract but what this this shows you is the real intimacy of it there is no space there is no space no place not your home not your children's bedroom where the Israeli army can't go any time of the day or night and as the father said very politely why don't you come during the day well we don't want to come during the day we come we come now we come whenever we want uh, and so uh, this video to me really sums up what military occupation is it is the total control of the population and it is um, the, 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 the message that we can do anything we want to you anytime and there's nothing you can do about it and of course that extends to killing you so uh, there is no law in the West Bank Israel is very good at pretending that it's a nation of laws and all of this kind of business and your Australian leaders as our American leaders and uh, you know all of the settler colonial countries never tire of saying that they share values with Israel, the values of democracy and human rights and I don't know what. Well, millions of people live in this situation and you will, not, you will rarely see this, if ever, in the media. Uh, it, you know, what you will hear if an Israeli gets injured or hurt. You won't hear about the daily reality of, of uh, what uh, occupation is. And, I'm, the, the story we have up today, it's one that you may have seen on, I'm not going to show the video because it's really just too uh, horrific, but if you, if you want to see it uh, uh, later, this is a video showing the uh, cold-blooded execution of a, a point-blank range of a wounded Palestinian in Hebron. And uh, it's been well reported in other places. Uh, the video is not coming up now, but I'm not going to show it. There it is. But I'm not going to show it now anyway. Uh, but, you know, you can see the soldier take aim at this Palestinian who's writhing on the ground, injured, and just shoot him in the head. That was Ali Avanama speaking about the situation for Palestinians. That uh, talk was given at Marxism 2016. We're absolutely out of time here on Asia Pacific Currents. Thanks for tuning in. And coming up next is Palestine Remembered. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.